pastime uh, that folks like to engage in, especially in weather like this. They sit at the edge of cafes and bars and pubs and so on. And they do so this for hours on end as they sup on their cafe frappes or whatever you enjoy, this kind of weather. And the thing is that people love to do is just to people watch. I don't know if you're in that category, you like people watching. People watching is a passive observation though, isn't it? Of people as they walk on by. You have no intention of ever speaking to that person that you're watching as they walk by. But you observe them. You categorise them sometimes, don't you? And sometimes you even judge them. Bert Bacharach once wrote a classic about this in the late 1960s of Andy Williams, who sang it. Everyone know the boys watch the girls, the girls watch the boys, as the world goes, yeah, you know the song, it's in your mind now. But there we go. People watching is a passive observation. And it's attractive because it requires no communication, no interaction or relationship with the person that you're watching. That is, there's no engagement demanded from you or required. And TV is the same. Often it requires nothing from you. Take, for example, the Eurovision Song Contest, which I guess some of you might have endured last night uh, for a little bit of time. You know, it is generally, it's a passive observation. That is, it requires or demands nothing of you. Nothing of your mind, nothing of you at all with regard to Eurovision Song Contest. The question is, is church the same? Is church the same? You come along and essentially you have a choice. You can engage, but you, you don't have to. You could be a passive observer. Is that what you think? The thing is, throughout the Bible, and particularly here in Luke chapter 8, with this very famous parable, I think that desire, if you have it, to just sit back and disengage yourself, and, and just to not take anything in, may be challenged today. You may even find yourself unwittingly engaged where you had no intention to be. With that in mind, and I want to park that, we'll come back to it later. Um, with that in mind, let's begin to see if that is true for us. Firstly, let's understand what we're reading. We always do this at Earlsfield, and I guess many churches do it as well. We want to see where we are. What we are doing, right at the moment, in front of you, open, is an account of Jesus' life. Uh, very simply, it is a gospel that's described as, as a good news Account. Gospel means good news. And it's accurately collated by the historian, notable doctor as well, a man called Luke. And what we have here is his collation of eyewitness accounts to the events of Jesus' life. And those who had seen and observed were still alive at the point of this was written. And therefore... There was never any critique that we can actually pull out of history. There's nothing to, to, if you like, say, what is written down here is an utter load of rubbish. And if it were, there would be something written within history to say that this eyewitness account is rubbish, is false, is inaccurate. There's nothing there. What you have before you is an accurate historical account that no one ever wrote against to, to, deny, to deny these historical facts. So you have before you a very accurate, historically verifiable account of what Jesus did and said. Where he went and what, and what he did and what he interacted with and who he interacted with. Uh, now in the span of Jesus' three-year ministry, 
uh, before his death on the cross. This story that we're looking at here comes near the end of what many people say is the, the early part of his ministry. That is, before he begins to send out his disciples to go in and work amongst the people to heal and to pro- proclaim the good news themselves. Before he heads back to Jerusalem to end up on a cross. This is nearing the end of the beginning part of his ministry, the early stages of his ministry. In the context of this chapter, chapter 8 of Luke, Luke has recorded a number of little stories. And generally the way he does, he, he puts them together in little kind of groups of stories. And what we see here at the beginning of this chapter, in verses 1 to 21, Jesus is kind of saying to, to, to us and to, to the readers, watch me closely. Sorry, listen to me closely is the first point. Listen. The second half, watch me. As he demonstrates his power and authority over numerous different things in little stories. Now, before we look at this parable, uh, and before we get into kind of the, the detail of the text, it's always good, isn't it, to kind of take a step back. Isn't it fascinating to do that and see what's going on in this nice little story? It, in one way, uh, the parable itself, in the, very, in the first few verses where the, those few women are mentioned, just cast your eyes down there, they're not difficult to understand, are they? I mean, look, at, look down, verse 1 to 3. You know, you, you see Jesus located with these women in a certain area. And, and it's very simple. The parable that starts in verse 4. Again, it, it isn't difficult to understand, is it? I mean, certainly for the first hearers of this parable, they would have got it straight away, I guess. A farmer would be walking along a path. And uh, he would, as per normal, he would have seed on him and he would reach in, he'd grab the seed and he'd chuck it out, he'd scatter the seed around. And of course, uh, the inevitable would follow, as we see here. Some would fall on a path. Some would fall on a rocky ground. Some would fall amongst thorny ground. And some would fall on good soil. To the subsistence farming community who would have heard this as the first hearers, this would have been like us hearing a parable about sitting on a sofa with a remote control in our hand. It is about, you know, it's as commonplace for us as it was then for them. You see, we get this. It's not difficult, is it, this parable? Now to the meaning of the parable, again, from verse 11 onwards, you see there, as as explained by Jesus, it is not difficult. We see the illustration kind of working through. Each soil is described. First a path, then rocky, and then... And then we get to the thorny ground, and then we, get, then we get to the good soil, don't we? Each has its own illustrative purpose, a verse each. Again, it's not difficult, but there's a shock here in the passage. Cast your eyes down, because I think this rubs against our normal preconceived ideas of what a parable may be. Look at verse 9 and 10. So his disciples asked him what this parable meant. And he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. Do you see? Truths about God's kingdom, and implicit in that, are truths about how to get into God's kingdom. Jesus is saying, we, on our own, cannot figure that out. Without God's intervention. Uh, to some, that is the disciples here, um, referring to that in verse 9. They have been given, God has intervened, God has given them knowledge. 
But others, I speak in parables. To others, I speak in parables. Why? And here is the shock, I think, of this whole section. Because in our minds, sometimes we think of parables are just nice little farming illustrations that kind of help our children understand more about Jesus and about God and how he works in this world. Maybe, but maybe not. I mean, Jesus is actually quoting from, from the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. That little uh, phrase there in quotation marks, those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. See, parables were used, and you must hear this because we're looking at a few in the next few, few weeks. Parables were used to reveal, but also to conceal. They were used to reveal, but also to conceal. See, so to those who have faith in Jesus, which is a gift from God, they have, their eyes, if you like, have been spiritually opened. The parable reveals to them something of the goodness and the nature of God. And to the person, though, with no faith, the parable conceals God and his kingdom and his son, the Lord Jesus, the way into that kingdom becomes, if you like, more confusing. I don't know if you've ever seen this where you've been chatting to people. I get the privilege of reading the Bible with, with folks and I've read the Bible with some of you guys here. And you can be explaining the good news about Jesus to, to two people, both equally keen. Both equally intelligent, both equally engaged in what you're saying and what you're looking at in God's word. And one gets it. Straight away. Their eyes light up and it's brilliant. And for one, they just, for every question that you answer, they've got another 20. And they just get bogged down in confusion and confusion and confusion. Parables reveal and they conceal. Though hearing, you may not understand. Because that is true for the whole Bible, if you like. You see, when, when truth goes out, it sifts its hearers. That is, you can never be a passive sitter, you know, sort of sitting back in a, in a sermon. You can't just sit there and think, it isn't for me. It either isn't, or it very much is. And in God's sovereignty, when the word of God is taught and, exp uh, and explained clearly, it has in it an intention from God under his sovereign care. For you, God is going to speak to you where you're at, encouraging you, challenging you, yet and maybe even rebuking you. So this is what you need right now. The Bible is open. The word of God is open. It's being sown, if you like. The seed is being scattered. And you have the opportunity to respond. And I suppose our prayer is that you are not one of the first three soils represented, but you are the last in verse 15. I hope that's your prayer today. See, the word of God, the Bible, when explained clearly and carefully, it goes out to people, And if you think for some reason you do not qualify, that you can just sit here passively and it just wash over you, that you're perhaps not good enough to hear from God or, or just that you're not bothered to engage at all. That is, you just want to sit back and watch Jesus go by. 
be a kind of a people watcher in that sense, then think again because you cannot be a passive observer. Let's, let's dive our heads in uh, to the, the passage if we can. Let's turn to verse 1 to 3 and refresh our minds of that first little section. I'll make a, a few points from that in a moment. So verse 1, after this Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also some women who were being cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, poor Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa and manager of... Um, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, these verses I want to look over quite quickly, if I, if I may. Uh, but let me point out two small things that may not be obvious to us, but would have been so obvious to the readers, to the listeners of this uh, gospel account uh, when, they were first, uh, when it was first heard. Firstly, as Jesus was pro- proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God... Notice that time is short. That is, there is an urgency. Look down at verse 1 if you can. Uh, There's an urgency in Jesus' getting the word out. And there's also a willingness in him to be completely spent, exhausted, in getting the word out. The good news of the kingdom of God. Now you see, look at, those, look at the words. To us, travelling about from one town and village to another in our lovely air-conditioned cars and so on, that, that doesn't seem to kind of, you know, kind of make it any kind of big deal for us, does it? That would be relative comfort, but think of the time. Think of the conditions. Think of the mode of transport. What Jesus is doing here is utterly exhausting and draining. Why would he do that for such a message? I think the implicit message, it must be worth hearing. It's a serious thing he's going on about here. So notice that time is short, there's an urgency here. And for Christians, if you're a Christian here, then I guess this is a good reminder to us, isn't it? Of the urgency and the the effort that Christ himself gives us as an example here. We ought to be making known the, the kingdom of God. Getting the word out. What an example Christ is. Secondly, though, notice from these verses that when preaching, yes, Jesus was urgent, but he was also inclusive of many, many people, of all people. Hence, we come to our first point, the word of God to all people groups. Again, this may be difficult for us to see in verse 1 to 3, given the culture we live in, but look again. Now, we see that the 12 were with him, the 12 mentioned there, disciples, all male. That would have been very, very normal. Traditionally, a rabbi, a teacher of that time, would have had male aides, male followers to to help him in his ministry. There's nothing extraordinary about that little phrase there. But then you get to verse 2 and 3. And here comes the shock. Firstly, notice that Jesus had followers that were women. Now, you've got to hear me right here. I'm not saying that that is a bad thing. I'm just saying, in that culture... That within the eyes of the law, women's testimony meant nothing. Therefore, for a rabbi, a teacher, to have a following of women would have undermined their message. Therefore, they never had women followers, as we see here. Certainly not women supporters, as we see here. We we see that the, um, the group of women... They come from a variety of backgrounds as well. 
So to put it in terms of today, again, I don't want to spend too much on, on who Mary was and her background and so on, or who Susanna and so on were, but if you imagine in today's terms, it would be like someone who's lived on the streets, maybe a prostitute, whatever it could be, the, the worst that you can possibly imagine to some aristocratic lady in a palace. You see, Jesus is revolutionary in his time. In his view of women as equals before God, his care of women, his appropriate love for women and understanding of women all goes to show that that whatever culture thinks about a particular people group that we may know, God, Jesus here, and us as Christians today, if we are Christians, ought to be willing to stand out from the crowd. Maybe even willing to bear a cost for loving and appreciating all people groups. Making the word of God known to all people groups. Jesus' love for these women is obvious as he leads them and he teaches them. And a love and a service that is reciprocated. We see that, don't we? The women, they give something back. They support Jesus' ministry. They do not leave his side. It is interesting, isn't it? That it is not women. It wasn't the women that we read of in the Bible who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It wasn't the women who left uh, Jesus sort of stranded in the garden for fear of their lives when they saw the, the soldiers approach. It wasn't, it was the women who were there at the cross to the last. It was the women who were there first at the empty grave. If these few verses tell us anything, note the word of God goes out to all, all people groups. Whatever the culture we live in thinks about that particular group of people. And it does so with an urgency, as we saw in verse 1. I I want to apply that. Just just think. Just think for a moment of a particular individual that you may know. That you may think is beyond knowing Jesus. You may think of someone who's just too immoral. You know, they have too a kind of crazy life that they can't possibly ever come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Or, you know, they're just too wealthy. They've got too many things that would distract them. They're never going to ever see a need in their life for Jesus. Or maybe you've got an excuse to think about verse 1 and applying that. I'm just too busy. I'm just too tired. Well, if you have any of those things roaming around your mind, then can I just say to you, I don't think you've understood an understood enough about who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And maybe, just maybe, as we get into this parable now, this parable may expose you. Expose you for who you really are because there are no passive observers here. You are here in this parable. Who are you? You are someone as represented The word of God is going out. Which soil represents you? Let's dive into that. Second point, the word of God goes to all hearts. Because all hearts are represented here. You cannot simply sit back and watch this kind of go by. You are here. The word of God is speaking to you. You're one of these. And this parable is essentially a parable of caution about the most important subject. That is of God's word coming out. Of actually God speaking to you in your heart. Which places all on, on, on all of, 
on all our shoulders a responsibility, doesn't it? I have a duty, of course, to teach the word of God, clearly and faithfully. But you also, we all also, have a responsibility to hear well. There is a category of good preaching, yes there is. But there is also a category of good hearing. So first caution, beware of the devil. I mean, I put down there the word path, because that's what we're talking about. Let's refresh our mind, verse 12 if we can. So verse 11, we see the word of God is sown. You get to read the word of God, it's coming right at you. You're hearing God speak. And do you respond as in verse 12? Look at it, those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. There's always two temptations with the devil, isn't there? It's to underestimate, sorry, overestimate the work of the devil first. Not recognising that what Christ has done on the cross is actually to defeat him eternally, to bind him, as, as we read in the Bible. But also we're not to underestimate the work of the devil, because he can still deceive and he can still tell lies. Because the devil is described elsewhere as the father of lies. And the great thing about the devil, not the great thing, but the interesting thing, he always comes to church. Um, he's the best attender of any church throughout the world. He never misses a week unless the Bible isn't taught. Then he's got nothing to do, so he doesn't bother turning up. But does this describe you? That is, you sit here week on, week out, and you hear the word of God, but immediately it's kind of like plucked away, straight off. Therefore, it can have no effect. It has no chance to get down deep into your heart. So what does the devil do that you actually allow happen? For example, do you let your mind wander? Uh, do you struggle to stay awake? Because perhaps as the Bible's being taught, you realise you stayed up a bit too late the last few nights and so on and, and so forth and so on. But are you thinking about the bills maybe? Is the devil still saying, oh yeah, you've got all that to work through when you get home and so on. Maybe you're thinking about the work, children, and all of those things are good and right to think about in their right time. But the devil loves to distract you. He's telling you, yeah, you really need to engage with that now and not the word of God. Oh, he distracts mums with all those kind of noble thoughts about their darling children when actually they just need for a moment to place the baby, their lovely child, with someone else and come away and listen to the word of God. He detracts us, detracts us with all those kind of thoughts of work maybe, about tomorrow, the project you're involved in, or a relationship. People wonder why they don't remember sermons. Just don't forget the devil. He will always be here. Whatever the weather, he comes when it snows, you know. Some of you won't. He comes even in heat waves, like now. He comes on bank holidays. He's always going to be here, wanting to pluck away anything that the Word of God is wanting to put into your heart. Is that you? Do you allow that? Are you a path? Secondly, let's go to the rock. Second caution is to beware of those kind of temporary impressions, those kind of feelings. Those on the rock, uh, verse 13, are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they do not have, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. 
That is, no deep work goes on here. There's an immediate joy. They receive the word of God. They go, wow, that's amazing. I want to learn more. I want to apply it more in my life. It's great. But that feeling is overwhelmed very quickly by other feelings. Now, don't hear me wrong. Feelings in and of themselves are good. There can be no saving faith in God without them. Hope, joy, peace, confidence, love. They are all feelings and they're appropriate and right responses to the gospel that we know. But they can be false and they can be temporary. It is possible to hear the word of God God taught and be so excited and so challenged. But within, within hours, another affection, another desire, another feeling can overwhelm. Whether that is pleasurable or that is painful. You see the word there that's used. It is times of testing. That's what's mentioned. And we, that could include both temptation but also persecution. So think about it. You go to church today, you get to the office tomorrow. People say, what did you do? I went to a crazy little building somewhere in like Wimbledon Park and it was boiling hot. Uh, but we went to church and it was great. We learned about God's word. And they say, you idiot, what were you doing that for? I was at a barbecue supping pims all afternoon and so on. And they rip you apart in front of your friends. And from that point, your mind and your heart are focused on them. Getting back some credibility with them. And if you are rocky ground, your insecurity about who you are will overwhelm who you are and know yourself to be before God. Oh, you will hear God speak, but something That insecurity in you will seek affection and meaning from another place through temptation or testing. Are you rocky ground? Do the feelings just wane very quickly or get overwhelmed by other feelings? Or are you the thorny ground? Thirdly, some weeks I can, I guess, be all of the three above in varying degrees and we can all be like that. Uh, But I think the one that most of us will struggle with the most is this third, thorny ground. And it's, they put it in, in kind of the old terms like this. The third caution is to be aware of cares of the world. Look at it, verse 14. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures. And they do not mature. You see, a person, I don't know if you like this, but a person who is like thorny ground... They'll hear the word of God and they'll agree with every word. Absolutely. There'll be no difficult doctrine which is kind of like, oh, they want to contest that or anything like that. Every word that is taught from the Bible, no problem. No objections even to the requirements of the gospel in our lives. The person probably will even want to, you know, kind of, Obey God in every aspect of their lives, whether it's at home or at work or whatever it may be. But they allow earthly things, cares of the world, to consume their minds. The word of God is so, and it is literally saying here, choked, suffocated. 
by the worries of life, by riches and pleasures, it says. See, I guess some of you here, and you do this a lot, you may know your Bibles fairly well. You may be able to analyze and break down a text and you'll be able to teach it and really well. And everyone will be so impressed with your handling of the Bible. And wow, you're great. But your heart and your mind may be consumed with other things. Getting a new car. Maybe just getting on the property ladder for the first time. Or maybe getting a notch up on the property, putting an extension in. Maybe it's a promotion at work that consumes your mind. Maybe it's a relationship which consumes your mind. Having children or more children. The thing is you can't hide it. You come across as someone who is choked think you can hide it, but you can't. If you spend no time feeding your heart and your mind with God and his goodness, you'll come across as someone who is suffocating through the cares of the world. It shows, especially, I want to warn you, with regard to relationship, it so shows and it is so off-putting. So are you thorny ground? Is the word of God being choked in you? Do you leave no room for it in your life? So many things can seem so innocent, can't they? And they are on many levels. There's nothing wrong with all those things I've mentioned. You know, getting a new car or getting a property or you know, a promotion. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves. Don't hear me wrong. But to excess... They are ruinous because they suffocate God's word in you. Do not be thorny ground. J.C. Ryle, the great bishop of Liverpool, 100 years ago, said this of them. They are souls poisons and helps to hell. Be good soil. That's the point of this parable, isn't it? Be good soil. It's a caution as well. It's a caution to beware of just being content And bearing no fruit in our lives for God. We should hear God's word with pleasure. And we should want to respond. We should want to act with decision. That is to repent. Turn ourselves toward God. Have faith. Take strides towards God. Turn back to him and trust in him. So let's turn to the good soil. Last verse very quickly. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and a good heart. Who hear the word. Retain it. And by persevering, produce a crop. Coming to church, going to Bible study, home group, getting involved even in serving in church, they're all good things, but they will not save you for an eternity with God in his good eternal kingdom. When Je- what Jesus speaks about here, though, through this parable is simple. The heart that will be with him in that kingdom, the kingdom of which Jesus is speaking about here, will be the heart that is not swayed by the lies of the devil, verse 12 is not excited for a moment, then buckles under pressure, verse 13. Is not choked by life's worries and pleasures, verse 14. The heart that will be with God for eternity, in his good eternal kingdom, 
is the heart that bears fruit that produces a crop. That is, they will have heard God's word, they will retain it, and they will respond to it. So they've heard of Jesus and what he's achieved for them on the cross by dying for their sins in their place, taking the punishment that their sin deserves and placing it on himself, and his perfect life being counted to them. They've heard the gospel, but that is not the end. Someone of good soil hears that and responds with good works. A life that is a loving gift for God. They bear fruit. They repent, they believe, but they also obey. The crop is the seed. um, That is the crop of this seed. And which are you? You cannot, you cannot, as I said at the beginning, be someone who just passively observes here and watches Jesus walk by. You are One of the soils represented here. One of the grounds represented here. There are four ways that you will hear and receive the word of God. And of those four, one is right before God. One will take you to eternity with God in his beautiful eternal kingdom. Now the question is at the end. Which are you? Which are you? Let's pray as we close. Maybe just a a moment of reflection for just a few seconds to think about where we stand as the word of God has come to our hearts. Are we a path, rock, thorns or good soil?